Coming up on today's show, safety in Alberta's big cities is always a concern, but heightened awareness this week following a random and deadly attack in downtown Calgary. The Liberal NDP deal, what's it about? And doctors in Canada reporting soaring levels of burnout. Not surprising, but it's twice as high as it used to be. Quick conversation, though, here, that's important, uh, especially in in our big cities uh, across the province of Alberta. Safety concerns, nothing new in Edmonton, Calgary. And, you know, same thing in Red Deer, Fort McMurray, Lethbridge, Medicine. There's all kinds of concerns around this. Um, This week, there's added concern in our province. Um, There's long been a focus on issues of violence in the downtown in Calgary and uh, in Edmonton. And just yesterday, Edmonton City Council was uh, discussing safety on public transit and a plan for addressing problems with the vulnerable populations that have been seeking shelter in transit stations and things like that. Uh, Crime in the downtown core was also an election issue for some candidates last fall. And then, of course, I'm sure you've heard the horrible story in Calgary. 30-year-old Vanessa Latasur attacked and killed last Friday. She was uh, just walking to work before 7 a.m. Michael John Adenye has been charged with first-degree murder. There's no connection between these two, none whatsoever. It's a completely random attack, and, you know, that kind of an incident, it's just a nightmare scenario for sure, and it's caused a lot of anxiety, understandably. So to talk about what's being done, it's sort of the community is coming together. Um, Lexi Willis joins us now. Lexi is the creator of a Facebook group, YYC Women's Safety, um, Lexi, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm hoping that this will help spread awareness and be able to make at least Calgary and Edmonton a little bit safer by doing so. Yeah, I think, you know what, it's it's sad in a way that we're, you know, the community has to come together for and create a resource like this, but in another way, it's really good that it is there and it is available. So uh, tell us about your Facebook group, how it got started and how big it's become. Yeah, I actually started this group exactly a year ago today, so it's kind of ironic that this is happening right now. Um, But basically, when I first started it, there was a series of random attacks that were happening in Calgary, and I feel like there wasn't enough news coverage on it in a safe space where women were able to kind of connect on a daily basis of things they had been through and things they'd experienced and share news and information um, in our city. Um, So basically, just started up the group and... Pretty much in a day, it got over a thousand members, and I thought that's just where it would stop. But we're over five thousand members today and growing, so that's really exciting to see that um, there is hopefully positive change on on the horizon. And a lot of women are coming together to be able to share their stories and be able to have that sense of community behind it and feel supported by their fellow sisters and aunties and um, fellow women in Calgary as well. How big has it become? I mean, how many people are a part of this group now? Um, I checked this morning, we're at 5,700 now, wow. so it's been growing quite steadily um, and getting new requests to join every day and more and more people posting every day in the chat and seeing those supportive comments from women in Calgary is really exciting. So unfortunately, um, it's not the best topic to be excited about, but I'm yeah. excited for the change it can hopefully bring. What? Why are people seeking it out? What are they getting? What? Do, what's provided on this Facebook group? What are people using it for? Yeah, so most people, um, when I originally started it, it was just supposed to be for information sharing. So if there was a situation that had happened in Calgary, kind of being able to spread that awareness that way, um, it has more so turned into a support group now, which I am very thankful for. A lot of women are able to go on there and share stories of situations they've been through, um, speak about domestic violence, speak about scary attacks that have been happening to them on a regular basis. So um, it's spreading awareness and spreading safety tips and information, but also kind of a support group for women in Calgary. Um, 
do you imagine that this is something, is there anything official coming out of it? Or, I mean, is it, I mean, not to say this is unofficial, but just the fact that, you know, you have women coming together and sharing stories and sort of, uh, you know, having community, which is so important. Do you see something more, I don't know, permanent or, or what do you, how do you see this growing going forward? Yeah, I definitely do think that there is opportunity for positive change. Um, I'm hoping to actually expand it more. I did create a couple more Facebook groups for a lot of different cities in Calgary just the other day because I have a lot of family and friends that live in neighboring cities and provinces that have come together and say like, hey, this is happening in our cities too and there's no awareness being spread about it. Um, so we do actually have a couple more pages that are have come out for Edmonton okay. now, um, Winnipeg, just like the major cities in Calgary or in Canada, sorry, um, and hopefully, eventually, we'll be able to have it more widespread to be able to spread more awareness for, like, women's safety in general, because I think it's really important, and it's not talking about enough. Yeah, I think you're right, and, you know, and we keep seeing these stories, you know, not just in Edmonton and Calgary, but other cities around the province, and like you say, across the country, so these groups, I'm sure they're filling a need, and we'll only see more and more of them as time goes forward. Yeah, totally. I've already seen a big outpouring of support for some of the other groups that I've created in other cities as well. So it's exciting to see that the communities are all coming together across Canada. And I think as long as we're sticking together to protect women, then positive change is on the horizon. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Lexi, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. That's Lexi Willis, who is the creator of the Facebook group YYC Women's Safety. And as she said, those Facebook groups are popping up in all kinds of different cities uh, across the country, including in Edmonton and in Winnipeg, as she mentioned. And I know uh, there's other groups that have formed in Edmonton. One of them was more to do with the the every weekend with the uh, weekly disruptions that were taking place with protests and things like that. There was an Edmonton Safe Walk group that started up where people could uh, reach out and uh, talk to each other and, you know, get escorts through the downtown or whatever the case may be. Unfortunately, that's that's the way we are in some cases. And I know the case in Calgary, really, uh, when you have something like that, a completely um, random attack, it's uh, it's something that it, it, it crosses that boundary, right? Because, I mean, when it's right out of the blue and it's a stranger and you don't know what the situation is, it... It means everybody's vulnerable. It's a really, really scary situation. You know, we've talked about this over the past couple of days, and I think we've covered the nuts and bolts of the Liberal NDP agreement uh, pretty well since the start of the week. Um, It is completely democratic, totally legitimate. It's an arrangement that's seen, you know, quite regularly in, you know, parliamentary setups outside of our country, or at least outside the federal level, because it's happened provincially in Canada. So, um, you know, it's it's not completely out of the ordinary, especially in other parts of the world where it happens all the time. Um, this one is meant to run until 2025, or until one or the other party decides to change their minds. Uh, it's meant to see the NDP government protecting the minority liberals from confidence votes in exchange for some policy, policy wins. You've got it by now. But, uh, as I've always said on this show, if Politicians are doing things. There's politics involved. That's the way that it works. That's the job, always. And now uh, we're seeing different analysts give us their breakdown of the situation. So we're going to chat now with Dr. Lori Turnbull, who is the director and an associate professor at the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, In the piece you put together on this... um, whatever you want to call it, agreement. Uh, you contend this is pure <laughs> politics, right? In fact, it's it's really just a consummation of a partnership that's been around for quite a while, actually. Yeah, like, I mean, it, as you say, this is completely legitimate. This is an absolutely fine thing to do, and parties are free to do it. And 
But I mean, to be honest, like it doesn't seem to me that the agreement itself is necessarily a major causal variable of cooperation, right? They're kind of cementing the things that they have been doing and the things that they will do together. And as you said, like there's nothing that stops either yeah. one from deciding that they don't want to do this anymore if it doesn't, if it's not working out the way they wanted. So, like I said, like you know, I mean, they've basically operated like this through the last minority parliament. Now they've just gone and made it official. Why? Why do they want to come out and sort of solidify the agreement, and make make this an official statement with press conferences and all the rest? What does Trudeau get for you know sort of consummating this relationship? So I think there's a couple of things there. I mean, one thing I think is what what you just said. Like it's it's the PR, it's the media attention, it's the 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 press conferences. Like it kind of had the effect of seizing up the day in Ottawa, right? Where all media were focused on this, and so it's sort of a channel changer, which I think the prime minister could be forgiven for wanting, right? Because his popularity on a personal level really took a hit over his handling of the trucker convoy, for example. And so this is an opportunity for him to put himself in a different light. He's going into a budget season. He's going to want to be doing some big, expensive things. And so, you know, it's it's some political shot in the arm to sort of have the NDP support on paper and to say, you know, regardless of what happens, here are the things that we've committed to do for you. It puts a lot of pressure on the NDP to stick with it, given the, the meaning of the items that are on the table here. I think it jams the NDP more than it jams the government. But... There we go. What about the fact that we're hearing a lot of concern about this from some corners that this will, um, you know, I had Matt Jenneru, a conservative MP on this week, and he's saying my big concern here is when it comes to committees and oversight and holding the government to account. That's what I'm really worried about. 100%. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, we hear some noise about this is a coalition and Jagmeet Singh is the deputy prime minister, and that's not true. Like, none of that's true. But there's reason to be concerned about whether committees are going to function the way we need them to function and whether this is going to be taken as a signal that the leadership of the liberals and the NDP have basically shaken hands on these, on these things, all of which cost a lot of money, all of many of which are in provincial jurisdiction. And, you know, there's a sense that this is a done deal now and it's the implementation, the rollout that's, that's waiting, but essentially does it kind of hamstring the parliament parliament in terms of holding the government to account if the leadership has already decided that this is going to go through? Um, what about the NDP? What do they get out of this? I mean, I, I guess it advances some of their policy positions that would never get advanced any other way, right? Is it that simple for them? I mean, like, I think they can certainly hold up a sense that the government may not have moved on some of these things without them. So there are some some of these things that, that like climate change, health care, reconciliation, the affordability slash cost of living piece, like those issues are things that you can look back at the two parties platforms and say, you guys agreed on all this, right? Very closely. And yeah. these are things that you all had as, as priorities. The dental care piece is something that the NDP can hold up and say, they wouldn't have done this without us. Now, again, does that mean that you have to have a confidence and supply agreement? Of course not. They could have done all this without that. But I think the NDP will try to say, listen, we, we finally got the prime minister to agree on things that matter to Canadians. And so they're going to hold this up as a track record and say the NDP has value in Parliament, the NDP has value as a, as a kind of partner to the government. And so I think that's probably how they'll try to sell it. Um, so, you know, we have the Conservatives, and as, as you know, we talked about uh, their position on some of this, obviously they're not happy with because, you know, now they're yeah. even more in the... What does it mean for them, and specifically two areas, but first, the leadership race. I think the plan was you get elected leader and you head into an election, which we all anticipated probably sometime next year, given what we know about minority parliaments. Um, now we're talking 2025. How does that change the leadership race for the Conservative Party? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question, and I kind of think it depends on who wins. I mean, at the outset, I think the message that comes from this agreement is that the two parties have agreed that there will be no early election as long as the key factors here are met. And that takes us to 2025. And so if we see the agreement in place for that long, it means the prime minister is in that chair for at least 10 years. It means that the possibility of taking uh, that chair away from him on the part of the conservatives is out of the question until 2025. Yeah. And so it gives a kind of takes the wind out of the sails. Now, it depends who wins. If Polyev wins, he hits the ground running because he's already there. If Sheree wins or Patrick Brown wins, they don't have a seat yet. Ah, yes. So They've got, to, you know, they've got work to do to figure out, how am I getting in the House? We need somebody to step aside. We need something to happen. Then we need the Prime Minister to call an election. He's not going to be terribly, you know, <laughs> killing himself to run to the, you know, elections candidate to call the by-election. And so it, it really has the effect of kind of dragging it out and, and, you know, stretching out the momentum. If somebody like Charest wins, you know, he's going to be an issue for the Prime Minister to deal with in, in Quebec and in Ontario and in Atlantic Canada, too, where I think his, the red Toryism would actually pay, play pretty well. How, for, do, does this make it to 2025? I mean, I guess, I guess that's the plan. Yeah. Uh, how likely do you think it is that it will, though? Well, I mean, I think these things are, like, even in British Columbia, where they had one in 2017, and it really was to bring some... Um, stability to a situation that was pretty precarious given the numbers and even that didn't last the full four years it lasted three which everybody kind of thought yeah that's that's a good enough nod i think to the spirit of the agreement whether this goes to 2025 i think probably has to do with whether the prime minister wants to stick around that long yeah whether um there's somebody in his camp who's sort of saying hey look i'd like to have a try at this and and that's going to be you know a decision that they make internally but i think you know there's something about trudeau it's like there's a, you know, people tiptoe around him. He's not like other leaders, whereas it would be totally normal, I think, for other political parties to be saying, OK, who's next? What are we doing? Well, you know, when are we going to do this transition? But there's a bit of a of a kind of a special aura around Trudeau where they're not doing that in the same ways that we might think. And so maybe this is going to be a way for him to stay in that position until 2025 and then see what happens. But I mean... Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Exactly. Who knows? That's, that's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows. We'll have to wait and see. Um Dr. Turnbull, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Anytime. It's really fun. Yeah, good discussion. Thank you. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who is Director and Associate Professor at the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And yeah, who knows? Who knows if this thing will actually hold up until 2025 or will somebody decide that they don't want to do it anymore? We'll see. We'll see. Um, But, I mean, she's right. When you talk about the reasons that it's being done. They're, east, they're all looking at it from, okay, what can I get out of this? What does this mean for me? And that's what the decision's being made on. We're two years past the pandemic start, right? And I think we're, we're at a fairly decent spot right now. I mean, I know there's some concern about wastewater and stuff. I've seen the stories too. I get it, I get it. But compared to where we've been before, we seem to be in a pretty good spot right now. But, you know, throughout this entire thing, over the course of two years, healthcare workers have been lauded as heroes, and rightly so, especially at the beginning. Two years ago, if you remember, as our hospitals were filling and none of us really knew what was coming the next day, they went into work and then we went outside and made noise and banged on pots and pans and hooted and hollered and cheered as a way of saying thank you to our frontline workers as they went in and did the job that uh, they had to do. Now, Unfortunately, you know that things changed over the course of the pandemic and resentment and bitterness and suspicion and all kinds of nonsense set in. And last year, some people actually decided that protesting outside of hospitals would be a reasonable step to take. 
May they ever feel ashamed for making that decision. But nonetheless, some of them did. Now, as our understanding and our appreciation waxed and waned over the course of the two years, our healthcare workers just didn't have that luxury. They just kept going to work, saving lives, doing the job. No doubt that's taken a toll. A huge, huge toll. A newly released national survey giving us some idea of just how tough things are, how stressed our country's doctors are feeling right now. Dr. Catherine Smart joins us. She is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this new survey reporting that more than half of Canada's doctors reporting high levels of burnout over the past two years, which, you know, that's basically double what we were seeing before the pandemic. Does that surprise you or is that sort of in line with what you're seeing? You know, unfortunately, those findings didn't surprise me at all. I am hearing this from colleagues across the country daily, and it's just, of course, growing and getting worse as we're deeper into the pandemic. You know, as you described so well in the intro, you know, our society is becoming more divided, and unfortunately, I think some of that frustration has been misdirected at doctors, other healthcare professionals, at our hospitals. Um, So it's been it's been a really challenging time, and I I don't think it matters, you know, where you work, whether you're a community-based doctor trying to help your patients as they are looking at exploding wait times to see specialists get diagnostic imaging or needing a surgery, or you're that specialist who can't get through your patients enough, can't get them the tests they need, or perhaps can't operate because all your ORs have been shut down to re-divert uh, resources to, to other parts of the hospital. You know, there's no one untouched by this. And I think physicians are tired and, and, and they're overwhelmed. The workloads are crushing and they're in a system that's crumbling around them. So they're sort of trying to keep it afloat. They're trying to do what they can, but it's hard to keep sustaining when you don't really see the light at the end of the tunnel, that there's serious commitment from government to recognize our health systems crumbling and, and really commit to the actions it's going to take to, to bring it back online. And, and that's where we find ourselves. Yeah, a bunch of different uh, angles in there that I want to talk about, about, you know, like you say, medicine, that, that's a pretty stressful position at the best of times, right? But um, what about the fact that, you know, typically, I think if you're practicing, there's probably peaks and valleys. And I don't know if, you know, maybe some days are busier than others, but it seems to me over the past two years, there hasn't been much of that peaks or valley. It's been flat out for two full years, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that's very true. And and again, you know, I think it doesn't really matter what type of medicine you do. Those pressures have been there and they, they may have been different in different parts of the system, but they have been relentless. And, and, you know, part of the stress has just been how do we keep getting care to patients? You know, we think of all the lockdowns we've had. Physicians had to pivot their entire practices overnight to virtual, trying to balance that. You know, am I doing the right thing? Am I actually giving good care? How do I get to my vulnerable patients? You know, this is really concerning. You're a nice you doctor. Well, you've been at it round the clock now for two years, like you said, flat out working way above the capacity of typical. And when you look around you at all your other colleagues in healthcare who are critical parts of our teams, they're also burnt out and leaving. And that then leaves more stress on the people still there trying to provide the care. So it's, it's I mean, I think the best analogy a bit here is we have a sinking ship. And... <sighs> I mean, when you talk about being a doctor anywhere, I don't care where you work, when you don't have, you know, faith and confidence in the team around you and the system that you're working within, uh, that's an added layer of stress on top of it, right? So when you see our healthcare system and what it's gone through, and I mean, I don't know how many times we've reported our healthcare system is under extreme stress and in danger of collapsing and on and on it goes. So undermining the confidence in the system, if you're part of that system and you rely on it to do your job, that's just more added stress, correct? 
Oh, no, absolutely. And I think what's mostly stressful about that, you know, this is not a surprise to anyone within the healthcare system. You know, we've all known this for a long time, even pre-pandemic. It's just gotten that much worse. And I think we've always had huge confidence in the people we work with. You know, the relationships between physicians, between us and other healthcare professionals that are on our teams are are strong. And and they've always been strong. And we've always valued each other. And I think that's why the Canadian healthcare system has been able to pivot as successfully as it has has throughout this pandemic is because of that deep commitment um, and that commitment to team and doing our best work. But where the frustration comes is is the government not owning the problem, not admitting that this is what's going on. And even though we keep raising the alarm, we're not seeing action. You know, at what point do our leaders, the people that can actually work with us, reimagine the system, reinvest in the system, at what point do they come alongside and really join our teams and partner with us towards solutions? And I think that's the root of, of most of the burnout for people is just feeling like, is this ever going to change? Yeah, and, and not just doctors. I think a lot of patients, a lot of us, you know, in the population are, are tired of the fact that we've talked for so long about how much money we spend on healthcare and how the system doesn't work as well as it should and we don't get what we need out of it. Sooner or later, there's going to be a politician that can come along and, and actually address the issue. But I think a lot of people share that frustration. It's not just doctors. Oh. Absolutely. And in fact, the the worst suffering is all the patients who aren't getting the care they need. You know, you've been sitting there for two years with chronic pain because you need your knee replaced or you have cancer and you can't get the test you need. You know, your child needs an operation and it's been cancelled to to make space for sick adults. I mean, every I don't think there's any Canadian who doesn't have a story of either themselves, a friend, a relative, a neighbour who suffered because of the state of the healthcare system. So, you know, and, and as physicians, again, I think so much of our stress comes comes from that knowledge, knowing there's so much suffering and knowing there's only so much we can do to change that. And that it's the worst thing ever is seeing your patient not being able to get the care they need. And I wanted to ask you about that because, okay, I'm not saying the pandemic is over. Don't, don't get angry at me, audience. I'm not saying the <laughs> pandemic is over, but we're at a point now where things have changed and we're doing things a little bit differently and there's no restrictions and stuff like that. So it's letting up in a lot of areas of society. But if you're a doctor, I mean, okay, you're not facing intense pressure from COVID in some hospitals the way you have before, but that means now it's time to catch up on the backlog and all the patients who deferred their care. So how long will this max load continue, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Like you said, you know, we're not through it. And and it's true, even though the pressures within the hospitals from COVID are lower than they've been, hospitals are still over capacity. Many wards are, and many hospitals are running at 125% capacity round the clock. They're filling up with patients with other issues, patients whose health care needs weren't met throughout the pandemic because of, of all the issues with diverting resources to COVID. And like you said, surgical backlogs, all these things. So there is no end in sight right now for the healthcare professionals. And if any they're being asked to ramp up and work more by governments who are trying to to leverage resources to meet the demands of these backlogs. But the human health side of healthcare is challenging, right? Yeah. That's great. Let's have more dollars and more OR time, et cetera. But we still need the staff to put in those places, the nurses to be there um, to support the, the surgeon, you know. And so there's so many pieces to that puzzle. And, and I think for most of us in healthcare right now, we're looking at it going, whoa, like, we, when does this end? When can we actually decompress the system to a point that it's manageable? And I think the reality is without significant changes, that that is not happening anytime soon. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've talked about it for so many years. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us.
Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dr. Catherine Smart, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.